Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Dr. Joanne Liu is a Canadian pediatrician who served as the head of Médecins Sans Frontières MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, for six years, until she stepped down in September 2019. We are going to listen back to my 2017 interview with Dr. Liu, which was one of my favorite episodes in the long history of this podcast. What I so loved about this interview is that it alternated between the personal and the wonky. Dr. Liu describes in detail some of the work MSF does around the world, but she also discusses how and why she entered this line of work and how it was an encounter with a famous book by Albert Camus, The Plague, that inspired her to want to join MSF. We also discuss how MSF is intersecting with certain global trends like increased displacement and also, sadly, the fact that hospitals are increasingly becoming targets in wartime. To that end, she discusses in detail how MSF responded to the bombing of one of its hospitals by U.S. forces in Afghanistan in October 2015. This episode is pretty heavy, but also, I think, very inspiring, which is why I wanted to post it now uh, around the holiday time. So if you are listening to this episode in real time, happy holidays to you. As always, feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover in the new year. I have some great episodes in store in 2020, and I'm looking forward to bringing them to you. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it's needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And I, I do think after having listened to this episode, you will be very much inspired to want to pursue a career in global health if you are yourself not already a global health professional. Feel free to click that ad or you can just send me an email too and I can put you in touch with the good folks at Northwestern. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Joanne Liu, the former head of Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The crisis in, in, in Bangladesh and in Myanmar is just the latest manifestation of a global refugee crisis. And I know that throughout your tenure as head of MSF, it's something that you sort of have seen emerge and become more and more acute. I'm interested to learn how 
the global refugee crisis has shaped or informed the work of MSF more broadly? How, how has your work as an organization delivering medical aid sort of shifted and changed over the last like five or six years? Well, that is a very interesting question uh, because um, actually we're always surprised to get that question, uh, in fact, as an organization, because I would say core of what we do, uh, MSF, is to work with displaced population. And that is at the inception of, of what we are as an organization since 1971, because we were we work at, at the front line in, in conflict zone, war zones. Uh, we, we work with displaced population. So either they are displaced within uh, within borders and they are internally displaced people or across border and they are refugees. So for us, working with uh, uh, refugees and displaced people is at the core of our social mission. And and so that that is what we do, period. So um, what we find interesting is this, this sort of traction it has in terms of how people are paying attention to the crisis, because what used to only happen uh, in in the conflict area and and the surrounding countries is now knocking at the door of uh, of European countries, and all of a sudden, it's not only uh, the issue of forced displacement, but it's 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 a refugee migrant crisis. Mm-hmm. Now it's labeled crisis, but it's there's nothing you but know. It's been a crisis I, I for you say. guys, like the the whole time. You've you've been there. It's just finally we're all yeah. paying attention, sort of thing. It's, yeah, and 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 the thing is, for us is is, is we're like, oh well, guys, you, you know the 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 thing is, in in 2011 there were f- 41 million uh, forcibly displaced people, and and it climbed up to uh, now 65 million. But, you know, I think that it's a noticeable figure is 41 million as well. So it, it just is, it's been there. It is growing, in fact. And, 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 uh, the reason why things are growing, uh, when I, I, I said in a simple way is the fact that I think that the push factor didn't change. People are facing hardship from, from famine, from, from totalitarian regime, from war, conflict, from organized crime, and they leave. And, and they leave because they leave for their life and they leave to get a life. That's as, as simple as this. And since, you know, since the beginning of the times, people have been crossing, uh, I would say border, uh, for, for, for their life. This, this is nothing new in, 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 in the history of humanity. It's just the, the scale is bigger and we're now noticing. Well, we're noticing because we feel affected by it. Mm. Well, when I say we, we, I think that the global north feel affected by it mm. because all of a sudden they cannot ignore it. People are washing up on their shores and they say, oh, God, you're on my shore. So <laughs> so maybe I should pay attention. So so but before when they were in the shore of another country that was not part of Europe, it wasn't really it was a non-event. So it, it, it's and it's it is a lot of, of, of I would say, um, uh, um issue that are like this it's a bit you know like ebola because i think ebola is always a good good example is ebola the first six months was really uh, a hemorrhagic fever happening in in western africa and few people were dying and being affected and we're seeing you know the 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 once in a while picture horror was happening there for the population the community but that was not 
part of some part of the world business. But the day that we repatriated two American to USA and then few European to Europe uh, infected with the virus, all of a sudden, the world was facing a bio threat, a pandemic, and needed to respond. Uh, and and so it's 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 I think it's important to remind people that often things are not really new. Uh, they've been there for a while and they've been incubating and 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 we it's only when a certain part of the world is paying attention then all of a sudden it's an issue. Well, I have news for you. It's it's been there for a long time. Um, so so that kind of leads me right into something I, I think would be helpful for my listeners to to learn from you, which is a little bit about the history of MSF and how it got started, uh, and sort of the the sort of how it's evolved over the years. So for those who are, I think everyone listening is is obviously aware of MSF, but perhaps they don't know more broadly um, where it started, how it was founded. Can you kind of take us through a little bit of of, of the various iterations of MSF over the years? Well, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders started uh, in 1971 at the wake of uh, the Biafra crisis, where a bunch of doctors, that's a bit, you know, like the mythology story, but I yeah. guess that's the story we gave, that basically they came back and just said, we have to tell the world what is going on there. Mm -hmm. And then working for the Red Cross, it was not possible to bear witness on what they have seen. Because the Med and Red Cross needs to stay like completely neutral, right? That's the idea. Well, that's the idea, but you know, as you may see, things have evolved as well on the red side, mm -hmm. on the Red Cross side. So, uh, but uh, back then, that was the way things were, and so, uh, so a bunch of doctor and and journalists decided to create, and there were thirteen uh, funding uh, uh, people, and and half of them were journalists, and they just said, said we're gonna we're gonna fund a new organization. That will bring, uh, uh, that will respond to acute need in, in people in crisis, but we will be able to, uh, to bear witness on what we see. Uh, but, but, and our key role is to, to give access to healthcare, but regardless of gender, race, religion, creed, political affiliation, it would be basically on people's medical needs. So, uh, so that's how it was created. And of course, when it started, it was pretty, I would say, um, uh, humble and small. And actually, initially, what MSF was doing is was recruiting doctors for other organizations. And and then uh, and as it started to gain a little bit more, I would say, uh, experience, uh, it 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 decided to uh, to basically do their own fundraising and their own operation and have their own permanent staff. And, and that was a huge thing because initially it was sort of an initiative between friends and all of a sudden we decided to become a little bit more organized, a bit more professional. And that created the first big crisis in MSF was in 1979, where basically some people wanted to keep it at the family size and other people say, no, we need to organize ourselves and we need to, to professionalize ourselves. And so there was a full era of the 80s where in that period, a lot of people call it the golden age of MSF to a certain extent, was the time when we created the guidelines uh, of MSF, when we created the kit. So we have created a full logistical support at MSF where we have kit, like a kit for how to respond to 
refugee, an influx of refugees, and we have a kit that responds to the basic medical, basic needs of refugees for 1,000 people, and then and then you send those kits per per number of people you have. So you have 10,000 people who just cross the border, you send 10, 10 kits of 1,000, for example. Um, we have kit for for Ebola, but we have kit for cholera, we have kit for malnutrition crisis. So that period was a period that we actually created the tools of actually what is giving today, I would say, the edge of MSF is, is having the tools to be able to respond quickly, uh, to, to crisis. And then the nineties came and we did something that we never thought that would make such a, di- a, a difference for us. But we increases the number of officers we add in the world. And now we have more than 48 officers around the world and we did uh, recruitment across the world, but we did as well fundraising. And then one of the things we secure in the 90s is our financial independence. And today, uh, especially after the fact that we stopped taking EU funding after the EU-Turkey deal, uh, we have more than 94% on what we call uh, private funds. We we have the privilege of having 6 million, um, I would say, uh, regular donors to MSF. And that's what allow us today to work in 70 countries, having a global, uh, global workforce of 42,000 individual, uh, and having an incoming budget of 1.5 billion. And that gave yeah, you the freedom to tell the European Union, no, thank you, after they uh, entered this, you, you referenced it, the, this deal with Turkey a few years ago, in which uh, basically European Union tried to shut its borders and um, to, to refugees and migrants seeking to flee from Turkey to Europe. Yeah, it's exactly what we did. It's, uh, we did that last year and uh, last spring last year. And, and basically our take was we, it would be completely apocritical to take money from um, from the uh, European Union when we know that today the restrictive policy on migrants and refugees is increasing their suffering. Yeah. And, and, and we must say that this was not uh, an easy decision and this was a highly contested internally decision. We don't always agree, but we, we often finish to agree to disagree within MSF. And and so right now, I mean, like it, the the hypocrisy would theoretically come from the fact that you would take European Union dollars to, you know, treat, uh, you know, people who are on the shores of of Greece, uh, you know, who are there and in desperate conditions because of these EU policies. Exactly. Um. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you joined uh, MSF? Uh, you were born in Quebec City, is is that right? Well, I'm 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 like many of the 42,000 people who are making MSF today who just wanted to be MSF. So I'm I'm one of those those people when I was a teenager that I've read a book on a volunteer uh, doctor for MSF working in Afghanistan and um, and was in in those times of uh, of the Russian occupation and and ISIS said, oh my God, this is such an incredible type of, of, of commitment and, and, and work and life. And in addition to that, because I'm, I'm like any good teenager, uh, I had my own uh, what I call existential crisis, and I read books, and one of the books I read was as well The Plague from Albert Camus, mm. which is a really great book I, that, that, that I 
if you haven't read it, you should read it because I yes. think it's, it, it, it's a story about our humanity and it's a story about, um, of, of what we face today in times of crisis is, 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 is the story is about this doctor uh, dealing with patient with plague. He doesn't have the treatment, but he keeps trying to care for patient. And at one point he's being asked, but doctor, Rio, what is driving you? Why do you keep going? And the doctor sighed and just said, well, I never got used to death. I don't know more. And, and I remember reading those, those words and I just say, I am promising myself that I will never, never get used to death and I will fight for life. And so my answer was to, uh, to join MSF. Have any events in your career um, challenged that determination that you had to not uh, sort of be acceptance of, of death? Have you ever come close, you think, uh, to, to sort of that, that acceptance in any way? It's not the acceptance of death, but I must say that my visit in Libya in September was very... Um, I would say um, I think that um, I've seen one of the most uh, the most inhuman incarnation of men's cruelty in Libya, and uh, and I think that is it's it's one moment in my life that I just said, oh my God. I doubt, I doubt about our common humanity, and and um, and and so the reason being that in Libya today, and I'm sure you've seen uh, the auction on 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 selling uh, African uh, migrants, uh, is the fact that today tens of thousands of people are trapped in Libya. And they are being in cycle of, of captivity. Uh, either they're being sold, either they, they, they are forced into prostitution, they are kidnapped and extorted money, and, and they just cannot escape from that. And in addition to that, uh, they, uh, we have closed the, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and, and they cannot, uh, cross anymore, or hardly. Only few of them can. And so, I've hardly seen in my life so much condensed, concentrated human suffering. People being, being kept in, in what they, in, in detention center for the sole crime of wanting to have a life or fleeing for their life and being abused over and over and over again. I've, I, 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 I cannot get uh, used to this, to this thought. And this is why we speak out about it in, 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 in September. And this is why we wrote an open letter to the European governments about, uh, about denouncing the situation that is happening in Libya of what we call, uh, I would say, uh, a business on, uh, a business on, on human desperation. 
Was there a specific encounter or a specific thing you witnessed that um, sort of caused these doubts to rise in your head? I think it's what I've seen and what I've heard. I think that at one point, people knew I'm the international president, and I said I uh, I, I would come and visit one of the det- detention centers where we bring uh, basic health care. And, and I'm there, and there's this big man in front of the door, and he sees me. And, and I just said, I'm coming to visit the center. He said, yes. And so he opened the door, and then all of a sudden, in that, when he opened the door, I see hundreds of people packed in a dark room, not ventilated, emaciated face. And I won't see, see those white eyes in those, in those black face. And they all telling me, get me out of here. Save me. And I'm like, oh my God. I said, how can this happen in the 21st century? I mean, and I- so that image will stay with me forever. And then after that is, is the stories they told me about what is happening to them. Like, how do you process that kind of uh, situation? Like how, like how, how do you try to, you know, make sense of it and then be able to carry on with your, your work after witnessing something like that? Well, this is really, really hurtful. And this is, this is really, uh, I would say, um, I think that, um, I think it breaks something inside you when you see something like this about, about, about believing about what I was saying about our common humanity, what, 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 what belongs to all human beings. Because I believe that if you don't recognize the humanity in, in, in your neighbor, then it, 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 and, and if you erode the humanity of, of, uh, in your, in, in other people, then it's the beginning of denying your own humanity. And so, um, for me, and that's why we, we had decided collectively was to speak out and not let people believe that, uh, and then we knew that the price could be that we might be kicked out of, of the country. And, and, but, but as I said, we just cannot know that and not share that with the rest of the world. And so that's what we did is, is we, we share it and we, we've told, you know, everybody that we met, every patient I care for, I told them, I said, my promise is my organization will use its voice to tell the world what is your reality. And are, are you still in Libya? Is, is, was MSF eventually kicked out or are you still there? No, we're still there. And um, we still speak out. That's obviously as, as, as you're, you're, you're doing now. Um, there, there's another uh, issue I wanted to ask you about, which is again, like I think an unfortunate trend in world affairs that seems to coincide also with your leadership as a head of a, a large, you know, uh, health and emergency relief operation, which is what seems to be an increasingly frequent attacks on health workers and health facilities. And I, I know that MSF has borne the brunt of, of a lot of those uh, attacks. And I'm curious to learn from you, like why now suddenly it seems that there seems to be this uh, surge in attacks on, on health facilities around the world, including on MSF facilities. 
Well, attacks on hospital and attacks, what we call a medical mission, it's which because we want to include not only the hospital, but the clinics and the ambulances and, and the doctors and the patient is, is, is nothing per se new. The reality is we don't have any benchmark. Uh, uh, so we don't know how often it happened, but I know that collectively we all thought that it was happening. Uh, and then we needed to have an inventory of that. And this is how, uh, healthcare in danger came up the project of ICRC. Uh, we had the medical care under fire MSF and, and it has, has created, I would say a momentum of that. And we have now a bit of an idea how often it happens and all that. So we know it happens. It not, not only happened to MSF, it happens to everybody. Uh, the, the difference is, is many people don't have the capacity to talk about it or decide to not really be as spoken as us, MSF. I think what is the, what, what has been, I would say, a defining moment, um, uh, for the organization, uh, it's, it's the attack in Kunduz on October 3rd, 2015. Mm-hmm. Because, can, can you um, can you um, just f- for those who are not uh, familiar, can you explain what what happened? Uh, and th- this was a, it was an attack that the you know the, basically the U.S. bombed your facility. Can you describe like what happened and how you learned of that news? Well, um, so it's it's a hospital in in uh, the northeastern part of Afghanistan. It's a place called Kunduz, and MSF. After several years of negotiation, opened in 2011 a trauma center, and uh, it was a hundred-bed trauma center that actually I ended up visiting and working in it in uh, just a few months before it was bombed, and uh, and basically it was a place that uh, was I call I used to call it the gem of northeastern Afghanistan because everybody in the valley of the Badashan. And, and Panjshir Valley knew that if they were sick, if they had a broken bone, the place to be fixed was Kunduz Trauma Center. And it was a place that everybody was coming from both sides. And, 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 and the thing is, I remember when I was doing the medical rounds, having seen people from the opposition, people from the governmental side, and I said, oh my God, this is such an, 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 a, 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 I would say a unique, and, uh, and I would say place of healing because everybody feels safe to come to this place. And, and, and the thing is, um, we, we had as well a highly special scare because we were doing, uh, in, in, uh, we, we were doing what you call in, in, uh, it's a inter- intensive care unit, but we were, uh, broken bone were with internal fixator. Not only external fixator, so it was sort sort of high tech stuff. For what we we uh, when we compare it to many other places we work with, we don't have the possibility to have that high level of technology. So, a place where people knew who we were, a place where people had our GPS, uh, I would say, um, indication uh, location, and 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 so what happened is that. That week of October 3rd, 2015, there were the, there were the, there were some, some fighting happening. And, um, and basically, uh, the, the front line sort of moved. And then, and, uh, we end up being, instead of being on the government side, we end up being on the opposition side. But 
this was known and people came to us and say it's going to be as usual. And what happened is on a clear night, uh, and we, we, you, you must understand that because the, the, the front line is so close to where the hospital is, we are in 24 hours out of 24 operating patients because we have casualty. We have people who are wounded people. are coming in from both sides, yeah, presumably. From both sides. And it's just, it just nonstop, completely nonstop. And then that Friday overnight at two o'clock in the morning, uh, in the clear, clear sky, we, we, we had got airstrike. It was not only one airstrike. But it was five airstrikes over more than an hour period, despite the fact that we called all the authorities in Afghanistan, in the U.S., telling them, by the way, are you aware that you're bombing a fully functional hospital? And so 42 people lost their life, and we lost 14 of our colleagues, doctors, nurses, ER doc, ICU doc. So for MSF, this will remain a black day, um, but uh, it, but it, it was. Can I ask, um, like, how did you learn of the news personally? Like, what what was happening, and, and like, what were you doing? Like, when when were you alerted of this? And what was your well, like first it, first instinct? What was your first first things you did after that? Well, the thing is, I was coming back from South Sudan, and I was in in my. Uh, I, I was in a, I was catching another plane and, 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 and so I turned on my phone while I was catching my, my next plane and then I saw someone send me a message. And so, uh, so the good thing is I was, I was, uh, flying back to Geneva. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is our, and, and the thing is when you, 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 because the first news was a hospital, our hospital, Kunduz was bombed, but we had no news initially, no no details. We didn't know what happened. We didn't know how many of our colleagues we lost. We just found out that as the hours were were were, were advancing, and so um, no, it was a very it was a very very dark day, very very dark day. And and, and, and yes. Well, I'm I'm just wondering, like. Have you pursued justice or claims, or or what has the response from the U.S. government been? Well, the the thing is 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 very early on, actually, the U.S. took responsibility for the attack, and uh, and so uh, that was one thing, uh, which is you know something that 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 it's not often done. But they took responsibility for the attack. And then one of the things that we were asking, uh, and that's what we did in the, the press conference three days afterwards, was asking for the uh, International Fact-Finding uh, Commission. And it meaning that we wanted to have an independent investigation because we wanted to know what happened. MSF, although we were hurt, although we were mourning, although we were very angry, we were not seeking justice. We were seeking understanding. And this is why we asked for the independent investigation. Because we say, what led to that? And what can we do to make sure that this does not happen again? And it's always been our goal. Have the facilities been repaired in Kunduz? 
Well, the facility, I don't know if you've ever seen picture, is basically the main building where there was the ICU and the uh, the, the operating theater and uh, the radiology and emergency was basically completely burned down. Uh, patient, you know, burned alive in their bed uh, while people were trying to withdraw from 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 the burning building. So uh, so and 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 the actually the heat was so much that the foundation hmm. of the hospital is is wrecked. So and and then we have decided that we will not go back there. Uh, and we um, we uh, actually. Uh, of course, the first thing our team asked us, uh, our medical team, Afghan medical team and international team said, when are we going to start again? And, but for us, it took us actually, uh, almost two years because we just started this fall again to open a small clinic in the region. Uh, because we wanted to make sure that we had a common understanding of how people really respect the medical facility of MSF. And, 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 and that, that, that we felt safe enough to resume activities. Um, we're, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to give you the chance to plug or discuss any other aspect of, of MSF work that you might want to before I, I let you go or what you are looking forward to well, in, in the near I, I future. Think just, yeah. just to finish the conversation on Kunduz is, mm. is the fact that it, this has led, because one of the things MSF asked and many other people and many other organizations is, is a political signal that, that hospital was a place of healing, that you were from living in the United States in New York or Geneva or Kunduz in Afghanistan, and they shouldn't be bombed. When people are fighting for their life, they shouldn't be bombed. And so, therefore, this led to the Resolution 2286, where the UN Security Council unanimously, with the backup, uh, the back of uh, being backed up by more than 80 countries, they said in that resolution that the medical uh, facilities, the patient, the caretaker were all, uh, I would say, uh, protected in, 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 in conflict zone. The reality is words are cheap because this hasn't been operationalized and therefore li- very little has changed in the field. So we need because I'm, I'm taking the opportunity, it's, it's, we need people's support to say that, that, uh, war have rules and that we should not drag hospitals onto the battlefield. Uh, well, Dr. Lou, thank you so much for your time and, and for your work and sharing some of your insights and, and experiences with me and, and the audience. This was, this was powerful. Thank you very much for this opportunity. All right. Thank you all for listening. And uh, thank you again to Dr. Joanne Liu. The new head of Doctors Without Borders, MSF, was announced over the summer. And his name is Christos Christou. And I'll try to get him on the podcast for a future interview. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.